0: All right, we're in Amos 9. We're going to wrap up the book of Amos, and we will be all ready to... uh... Uh Uh-oh. It was going crazy for a minute. I was about to live one of Mark's nightmares with iPads. (laughs) Amos chapter 9. So as we've been going through, we always want to... Keep in mind the context, the point, the purpose as we've been going through. We began with, and every prophet has, what's called the oracle to the nations. So you always have somewhere within the prophet, doesn't matter which one, somewhere you have an oracle to the nations. That is God speaking his judgment out to the nations. Okay, so... When God is speaking out his judgment to the nations, you need to understand that that judgment typically is based on how they treat their neighbor. Okay? But when you look at Israel, they will have a longer judgment and it will be how she treated her God. So you have you have the The concept of of judgment. Now Jesus is going to talk about that too, isn't he? We probably won't get there Sunday. Uh, We'll be in chapter 23, but it won't be long. And you will hear about the judgment of the sheep and the goats, right? And what does he say? There's this phrase, when you've done it unto the least of these, then you've done it unto me. So you have that that concept the idea how did you treat your neighbor how did you treat your neighbor the judgment as uh uh, as we see the judgment of the nations and so when we look at the judgment of the nations now obviously the way what we see as we move from old testament we have the the promise of god's deliverance um and the hope of all the nations entering into that deliverance and the reality we do see pictures in the old testament of gentiles being saved by faith in god right you guys remember any of those there was a fella he was he had leprosy remember he came to um, was it elijah or elisha who remembers it's naaman and uh, so he comes and he is introduced to the living God, right? And so he he tells the prophet, right? He says, okay, well, tell, tell your God, I'm going to have to escort the king into all these other temples. So give me some dirt. And I'm going to put that dirt in those temples because when I walk in those temples, I'm not talking about those gods, right? I'm not honoring those gods. So we see pictures of people coming into a relationship with God through faith but you see that blossom after Christ right and when we see we come to the day of pentecost who is who is saved on the day of pentecost well they're all in Israel right and i assume there's a, at least a remote possibility there's a couple of gentiles in there but i don't know they're at the temple Peter preaches a message. How many souls saved the first time? Come on, know your trivia. 3000 souls are saved. And then we have another message comes a little while later and adds how many more? So you end up with a total of 5000 of men. I'm assuming at least half of those are married. You have your first mega church, right? You guys ever gone to a church with more than 5,000 members? So you have this, and primarily that is Jewish, right? Now, by the time we get to Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to Cornelius. We start to see uh, the gospel going out to the Gentiles, yeah? And you start to see the fulfillment of that promise as Gentiles by faith are brought into a relationship with God. And the Jews, believing Jews, are brought in by faith in Jesus Christ to a relationship with God, right? So when we look at the prophets as they, especially tonight in Amos 9, as it wraps up and looks forward to a restoration, you need to think in terms of that. You need to think in terms of the promises being fulfilled in Christ and the amazing things that God has done and is doing uh through the gospel right as the gospel does what nobody thought could be done it tears down the middle wall of separation and it unites as paul said there is now neither jew nor gentile barbarian sithian slave or free we are all one in christ one glorious body of christ and so when we look at the text, there's always a, a, a thicker, uh, harsher judgment poured out on the nation of Israel because she had the oracles of God, right? The nation of Israel had a relationship with God and they knew more than the other nations did. And so to whom much is given, much is required. And so there is a, a greater condemnation that comes, but there's also always a promise of restoration and the remnant that will carry on so that there's not an end of Israel. There's not an end of the Jew, but there is always a believing remnant. There are always those who by faith are able to draw near to God. Now in the Northern kingdom, we're in Amos, we're dealing with the Northern kingdom. There's two kingdoms, North and South. We oftentimes, there are, there are people make mistakes and they say the northern kingdom is 10 tribes and the southern kingdom is two, so we have 10 lost tribes. Well, that's not the case. The northern kingdom was, was 10 tribes, broke away from two tribes. But every Jew who wanted to worship God went south. So in the southern kingdom, there are a representation of 12 tribes. Everybody understand You're just not in your hometown if you want to worship God. And in the northern kingdom, you have all the the borders of the land of all the stuff in the north. And that, that kingdom is going to have all the representation of those who are in rebellion against God. So each have a representation of all the peoples, but one represents those who are Uh, in rebellion against God, they're going to face a harsher judgment and there's not a return for them. They just go into captivity. Hey, Howard, you want to mute the guitar? It's going to start humming. Or you just want to hear that? Ooh. Hey, there you go. So, so is the Lord coming? So you have 10 northern tribes. He is coming. Hallelujah. You have 10... Northern tribes, right? Okay, so those represent the tribes in rebellion against God. They're the first to be judged and their judgment is harsher because I just want you to think of it in terms of salvation. Okay, if we talk about in terms of salvation, what happens to the unbeliever? Okay, and the southern kingdom represents the remnant. Now, you have Isaiah, who's going to go to the northern kingdom, Amos, some of the other, ju- or some of the other prophets. In the southern kingdom, you have Jeremiah. Jer- Jeremiah's message is going to be pretty different. It is basically, submit to the judgment of God and live. Go, plant, build, have families, raise your children, increase, don't decrease. I'm going to bring you back into the land. Okay? <clears throat> so... You kind of have this picture going on. Now, the promises that God has from the divided kingdom through the prophets is that he's going to bring his people back into the land. So I want you to understand all 12 tribes will come back into the land. But the northern kingdom is going to be the Samaritans after this. Okay? And the southern kingdom is going to be the 12 tribes of Israel that are going to come back into the land. And so God will fulfill his promise when he brings his people back, but it's the remnant that he brings back, right? Uh, Think of it in terms maybe of the flood in Noah. There was judgment that befell everyone. Noah went through the flood too, right? But the remnant, the believing remnant, and at that time, In the book of Genesis, it was Noah and his family, right? They are brought through the judgment and reestablished on earth, in the land, okay? And we'll see the same thing here with the nation of Israel. So God begins in Amos 9, verse 1, to tell them it's impossible to escape judgment. This is how the New Testament says it. It is appointed unto man once to die and then... So as sure as death, and death comes to how many? Unless the Lord returns, everybody dies, right? So everyone is judged. There's a judgment. And so the the Lord here is saying that it's impossible to escape God's judgment. In verse 1, he begins, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. So you have Amos sharing this vision. God is standing by the altar, which ultimately is the place of the guy who's in charge of sacrifice, right? I'm standing by the altar. And he says, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. Shatter them on the heads of all the people. To those uh, who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one shall flee away. Not one shall escape. Everyone's going to see this judgment. Now, God is declaring himself as the one who's in charge and that this judgment is from God for the rebellion of the people, no different than a judgment that we'll see at the great right throne when people, all the living and the dead, stand before the Lord God Almighty, right? And he will check the books. And if your name's not written, where? In the last book of life, then that's it. So, the Lord is saying, look, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And today, your kingdom is taken from you. We've heard that before, right? Your kingdom is taken from you. I'm going to shake everything and all this stuff. What they had in the northern kingdom, a lot of affluence, a lot of wealth. They had a lot of cool stuff. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to strike the, the... Head, the top of the door, and I'm going to bring it all down. I'm going bring it all down. It's all going to fall. In Isaiah 6, 4, Isaiah, speaking to the northern kingdom, says, The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So you have Isaiah talking similarly. When God speaks, it shakes the foundations that we have. And in this case, it's shaking the foundations of those in rebellion against God. The unbelieving part, if you will, of the nation of Israel. And he wants them to know, look, there's no escape. Look to how he describes it. There is no escape. Verse 2. If they dig into Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew word. The Greek word for Sheol is the word Hades. It signifies the grave, but it can also mean the abode of the dead. Like if you were, if you're thinking in terms of metaphors, if you could dig down into hell, well, you can't. But if you could, you, you won't hide from my judgment. So if they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up into heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, one of the highest mountains in Israel, if you hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, I will command, uh, I there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Keep in mind, the symbolism of the sea was the sea represents chaos, and the serpent is Leviathan, the chaos dragon, if you will. And the point that God's saying is, there's the whole point is there's nowhere to hide. If you go down to the bottom of the sea, let's say you could become a mermaid, and you swim down to the bottom of the sea, I will send Leviathan. There's nowhere to go where you will not be uh, in a place where God cannot judge you. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. And that word evil is the word raw. And the word raw, does, it can mean evil, but m- most often it means destruction. So the idea is I'm going to bring destruction. I'm not going to bring good. I'm coming in judgment. I'm not coming in blessing. I'm coming to correct. I'm coming to discipline. I'm coming to to cleanse the land. And so the Lord is laying out this idea of his judgment. Nowhere to hide. He gives five illustrations, right? Not in the grave, not in heaven, not at Carmel, not in the bottom of the sea, And not in captivity. There's nowhere to escape the Lord's judgment, and that judgment is sure. And that is an important thing for all of us to understand and to remember. But we also, in light of all of that, want to remember the the concept of where can we go from the grace of God. Is there somewhere that we can go? Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand or discern my thoughts far away. You know my path, where I'm going. And you know when my path ends, my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know what I'm going to say. You know it all together. And in your sovereignty, God, you hem me in. But I, I, I definitely believe that there is freedom in man. But I also believe there are hedges the Lord puts up. So our freedom does not take us places that God says, I don't want you over there. He says, You hem me in before and behind. You put your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? So here David is saying, Can I hide from God? And everything we've been reading is about how God is for you and watching out for you, caring for you. He knows who you are, He knows where you're going, He provides His guidance. And He says the exact same thing in Psalm 139. If I go to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I climb on to the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there, your hand is with me. If I say, I'll hide in the darkness, the Lord says, darkness is light for me. And then the psalmist declares, you formed my inward parts. You were there when I was made in my mother's womb, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In the same way God is everywhere when it's a time for judgment, he is also everywhere in the time of his grace and the outpouring of his spirit. Now when we look at this reality, it is, I know it's hard for us because we go through the prophets and we, we're, we'll be in the prophets for so long some of you guys will never see Genesis again. So as we work our way through the prophets, we hear a lot about judgment, but recognize in order to get to the place of judgment, you have rejected and rebelled against the place of grace. And when we do that, that road leads to God's judgment. The book of Proverbs tells us two roads, right? One that goes to life and one that goes to death. Jesus said there are two roads. One is broad and one is narrow. It's the same message, right? Same message all the way through the scripture so that we can understand. Look, in order to get to the place of judgment, I have rebelled against and rejected all that has been provided for me. Don't we see that same picture in the gospel, right? What what was the crime that Jesus did? Well, he healed the lame and the blind. He cleansed the leper. He raised the dead. He fed 5,000 and then 4,000. He taught them about the law and what it was really about. He gave clarity. And the Bible says the poor man heard him gladly. But what happened is he's rejected. They continue in their rebellion. Do you know people that you have shared the gospel with who continue in their rebellion? Who won't hear, won't listen? You need to know it's not your job to save them. You can't save anyone. Right? We have a responsibility. Our responsibility is to tell and pray. We can pray for them and we can share with them. And if the door closes for me to be able to share with them because I made some offense or they're tired of hearing it from me so they don't open their door anymore, then I can pray that God would send someone they will open the door for, right? That's our role. Jesus saves. He's the one that does that work. In the Old Testament it was the prophet who came with the word of God to the people. But they did to the prophet what they did to the son. Remember the parable of the vineyard? You sent the prophets and what did they do? You beat them, You killed him, you threw him out. I'll send my son, you'll beat him, kill him, throw him out. That's the final rejection, right? That's the final rejection. And then judgment came. So I want you to keep that in mind as you consider the judgment of God coming in Amos chapter 9 and the judgments that we're going to read about, because many of the prophets are dealing with the same time period. But the point is that we would recognize that in order to get to the place of judgment, you rejected the grace and spirit of God. And now you find yourself in a place where you are, there is no possibility of escaping the hand or power of God. And listen, please. God's purpose will never be thwarted. Just think about that. God's purpose will never be thwarted. Trust me, you do not have enough power to stop the plan of God. What you do have the power to do is remove you from the plan of God. Do you understand? Think about Esther. You guys remember the story of Esther? Everybody remember? Right, I gotta lift my glasses. Everybody remembers? Okay, so in the story, I can only see words with these glasses. Everybody's fuzzy out there. So, In in the story of Esther, Mordecai tells Esther, look, maybe for such a time of this, God has raised you up so that you can be the the heroine. You can be the one who saves his people. You remember the story? And then Mordecai says to her, but if not, he'll raise another. He'll raise another who will do it. Now, he's, he's, he, the offer is before you. The choice is laid out. I have two paths I can go by. God's going to accomplish his purpose. The nation of Israel is going to be spared. And Esther decides to rise up and be the one, fulfill God's, God's uh, uh, purpose in that. But Mordecai says, look, God's going to save his people whether you help or not. But if you don't help, you're going to miss out on the blessing. And the idea is the same. It's the same. You cannot stop the plan of God. Was there something someone could have done to stop Jesus from going to the cross? No. He was going to the cross. How is that accomplished? It's called judicial hardening. That means God hardens hearts for a redemptive purpose. So what happened is the people were stuck in their rebellion The scribes and the Pharisees were stuck in their rebellion. The day after, Jesus rose from the dead and gathered with his disciples for the 40 days afterwards and then ascends into heaven. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, walks into that area around the temple and he begins to preach. The same people who crucified him heard that message. And on that day, you could respond to the word or you could not. You could come. This is an this is important thing to understand. When, when the scripture says Jesus Christ commands all men everywhere to repent and believe, he does not at the same time deny you the ability to repent and believe. Are you, are you understand what I mean? That's called duplicitous, and it's weird. So when that goes out, they have the ability to respond. And those who do enter into blessing, right? And those who do not enter into judgment. And that's what we see throughout all the prophets and all the judgments of God, leading all the way to the destruction of Israel and 70 AD and that's what I think we're going to see still in the future right we're still going to see those things that pattern is going to continue we're going to see it as as we go so the Lord is telling them here we haven't got to the good part yet so I'm going to have to hurry up But the Lord is telling them here look you can't stop what's coming it's coming this is coming I have set my eyes to destruction. Listen, it says the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it will mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. He builds his upper chambers in the heavens. He founds his vault upon the earth who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Man, that's powerful. The Lord Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And Yahweh Hashem, the Lord is his name. In fact, there's a point where the Jews will shorten the name of God to Hashem, the name. The name. But here he's saying, look, the Lord is his name. Can anybody stop what God's doing? No, man, He's God. We don't get the job. Doesn't matter how bad you want it. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are not worthy of him. In other words, you make a God of your mind, whom you worship, that is not equal to the God of the word. Right? God's revealed himself to us in his word. That's how we worship God. That's the God we worship. You with me? Some people make a God of their own mind. You've heard people say, my God would never do that. Be careful of that phrase. You need to know God. And we know him through his word. The Lord is his name. In verse 7, Are you not like the Cushites to me, people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaptor and the Syrians from Ker? He's like, look, I've, I've been in charge of what's been going on around the world since the beginning. I've been doing all of these things. The Lord's like, I'm, I, I didn't take a day off. These things didn't happen while I was on vacation. All of this stuff I have done. The Lord's hand over all other nations, and in this verse, the Lord says to Israel, "You have become like the goyim to me. You have become like the other nations." The word goyim is the word used for Gentile. The word Gentile just means the other nations. That's why it's, it represents everyone else. Israel, goyim, the the in the in the. In the Greek, it's ethnos, ethnos, but it just means nations, the other nations. And so he's saying, you've become like the other nations to me. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Is he utterly destroying Israel? No. You're always going to hear no. He never utterly destroys Israel. Israel. What part of Israel survives every judgment? The remnant. So if you to make that simple, the remnant is believing. Does God know how to preserve the righteous and judge the wicked in his judgment? So the Lord says, I will, I'm not going to make an utter end, but the northern kingdom is gone. And the next time the kingdom comes back, there will be one Israel. One Israel united, one Israel. Still 12 tribes, like like always, they're going to go into the north as well as the south when they return from the Babylonian captivity. They will fill it all again. Uh, He says, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations like one shakes a sieve, but not one pebble will fall to the earth. So the Lord's going to shake it. There's no escape, right? He says, I'm going to shake it like a sieve, but nobody gets out. That shaking is a picture of the Lord's judgment. Not one will fall to earth. All the sinners of my people. What did he say? A few of the sinners of my people. What did he say? All of the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Everyone who says, disaster will not overtake, they all said, ah, God has no power to judge us. Stop worrying about that. We worship these two golden calves. All of those people, he sees their sin. He will bring destruction. It's not utter. It's not the end of Israel because it's the end of northern kingdom. But it's not the end of Israel. It's not the end of 12 tribes. It's the end of the northern kingdom. He will sift them and prove ultimately that he is God. Now, in verse 11, God lifts up his eyes, the, lifts up Amos' eyes to see the blessing return. Look what he says in 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruin and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, when he says this, the place of worship is going to return. God's promise to David is going to be fulfilled. What is God's promise to David? You're going to have, a, your family is always going to reign, right? There will be a king who will never fail from your family. What's that king's name? Jesus Christ. Right? The Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah the prince, the king. Jesus is so when when the when Amos lifts up his eyes and he says, "In that day I'm going to raise up David. There's a day coming when I'm going to raise up a king that will never fail you. He'll never die and one day he will sit on David's throne. Amen? One day he will sit on David's throne, and he will rule the earth. (coughs) We all believe Jesus is coming back, right? We may argue about when, how, where, how, what it looks like, but the final result is Jesus sits on the throne, and he will rule the whole earth. The book of Revelation says, an angel stabs the ground with a banner and declares all the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Jesus Christ will rule and reign. So David's broken, but it's not gone. The house of David's not lost because Jesus is born through the lineage of David, right? That's what we're celebrating at Christmas time, right? The birth of the king, the humble king born in a manger, right? So he's gonna raise up the ruins and rebuild it, As in the days of old in verse 12, he goes on that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name. What is he saying? He's saying that there's going to be salvation that comes to the Gentiles through it too. All the the Gentiles are going to serve the same king. The same king as the Jews, and he calls them the remnant of Edom. What do we know about the word remnant? Most of the time when the word remnant is used, it's talking about those who believe. The second phrase, look how it informs the first. All the nations who are called by my name. He's talking all the goyim. Let me simplify it. All the Gentiles called by my name. From all the nations. In Revelation 7, 7 where, where John says, hey, I heard the number, 144,000, and 12,000, each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then John says, I turned and looked, and what did I see? I saw a multitude that could not be numbered from every tribe, nation, and tongue, who all find themselves under Christ as king all together. When we look at this, we see the promise of God saying, "Look, I'm not cut you off. I've not thrown you away, but I am going to incorporate together all those of faith under the banner of Jesus Christ, under his name. And he will rule from the throne of David. And all the believers will be gathered in that place. What do we call that time? Millennial reign of Christ, right? The kingly reign of our Lord and Savior. Look what he goes on to say. Uh, Verse 13, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman, the one, think of the plowman as the one building, okay, is going to overtake the reaper, There's going to be more building than there is going to be destruction. There's going to be the treader of grapes is going to be overcome by the sower of seed. There's going to be an abundance. You're going to have abundance of everything. You're going to be constantly plowing and constantly harvesting. And there's, there's just going to be this incredible blessing of the land. He says the mountains will drip with sweet wine And the hills shall flow, the hills shall flow with it. So the blessing of the productivity of the millennial reign of Christ. Oh, I don't, don't, I'm excited to see what that looks like. You know, to look out over a land where the curse has been lifted. And Jesus rules and reigns and the believers are gathered under his reign. What a beautiful, beautiful time that will be. He says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. So they will get more in Christ than they ever lost anywhere else. For in Christ there are greater riches than there is in anything else. The king of the line of David. It's a beautiful picture of God fulfilling his promises. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards, drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Now look, the remnant is going to return to the land of Israel. And that pattern is prophecy. So we're going to see one, two, uh, maybe cut. Our, let's say I argue for three exiles. But after a, every exile, they have one thing in common. The Lord always brings the people back and plants them back in the land. You have Egypt. You have their deliverance, the exodus from Egypt, the establishment in the land. Assyria, Babylon, and then the return back into the land. You have the destruction of Israel in 70 AD, the scattering of the people for 2,000 years. And then what happens? God plants them back in the land. You see that pattern repeat itself, and that pattern is prophetic. That pattern, will God judge wickedness? Even if it's of his people Israel. Come on, if we, if we spend any time in the Old Testament, we know that, right? And if God judges them, will he judge us? Yeah, so we want to be sober, right? That's what Peter said. We want to be sober-minded. We want to think about the things we do. We serve a king, Amen. And if we serve the king, then we ought to do the things that king directs us to do, right? We want to fulfill our purpose and his plan before us. So the Lord goes on in verse 15 to say, I will plant them on their land and they will never be uprooted out of the land again. Now, I don't know if that's occurred yet. In my, in my opinion, that occurs when Christ returns and he sets up a kingdom that will never end. And I I struggle with Revelation 19 and 20, so trying to reconcile how that all works. But here's what I believe from Scripture. In the book of Daniel, when the rock not cut out with hands strikes the statue of the kingdoms of men, that rock becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. And that mountain is the kingdom of God which will last forever and ever. So Revelation 21 and 22, I know there will be a moment when God creates a new heaven and a new earth and the reign of that king will never end. It's eternal and they will never be uprooted again. Home will be home. No bad guys are coming to get you. Home will be home. New heaven, new earth, uh, new Jerusalem, right? Right? Floating between heaven and earth. It should be pretty amazing. And and so that's where I look toward for the fulfillment. Now, maybe it's been fulfilled already. I don't know. In the future, I don't know. When I read Revelation, there's a possibility of some crazy stuff happening, right? So so I'm not sure how that is all going to play out. And all the people who tell you they're absolutely sure should make you nervous. In case you're not in case you're wondering. But I know when Jesus reigns, that's, everything's golden. And we're looking forward to the return of the king. Amen? We're looking forward to that promise. And the beautiful thing is, within the church, there's total agreement on that. Total agreement on what happens when Jesus returns. We argue about how he does it. The timing, What's going on when he does that? We argue about that because we have a hard time seeing the future. Is there someone here who sees the future clearly? Because we should talk. So we look for it, and we, and, we, and it's a blessing to search the Scriptures and try to understand all of those parts, but we recognize when Jesus Christ rules and reigns, his kingdom will have no end. Nobody's going to supplant that king, Right? I will be their God. And he says, they will be my, they will be my people. So there will be a time, this is my point, I guess. There will be a time when that pattern never gets repeated again, right? We've seen a lot of the repeating of the kingdoms of mankind from the statue of Daniel. Four kingdoms he specifically talks about. And then you have the continuation of, of iron mixed with clay, clay feet, clay feet, that seems like it's over, overarching, it moves from strength to weakness. <clears throat> and we've seen kingdom rise, kingdom fall, kingdom rise, kingdom fall, kingdom rise, kingdom fall, all hoping that the next guy who, who pledges that he's got all the answers is the one. But the reality is everyone who ever stands up and says, I have all the answers is just another picture of Antichrist. Because there's only one who has all the answers. And that is Jesus Christ. So every failure is a is a hope or a promise of a fulfillment and the return of the king. And so that's where we put our hope and trust. And so when we see those, those prophetic times where the, the prophet lifts his eyes and sees further down the, the quarters of time, if you will, And sees out in the future when when there's going to be a restoration and a kingdom and everything's good. The curse is lifted. I always think, man, that's it. That's when Jesus reigns. That's when Jesus reigns. Now, what do we do? Now, our responsibility is the same as Adam's. Adam was told, here I planted a garden for you, Adam. Adam. Now you go out there and make every place like this garden. And so we go forth with the good news of the gospel, right? To bring the reign of Christ into people's hearts until the reign of Christ comes to the earth, right? We're the heralds. We're the advanced forces. We don't fight. We don't have to do any of that. We just have to share the good news of the gospel and watch God do his work until we see his face. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for who you are, that you are the Lord God of hosts, that you are able to deliver your people and that you have delivered us you have lord god brought the truth of your gospel into our lives you've you've brought us into a relationship with you and all along throughout scripture over and over again we see you promise there will be a day there will be a day when jesus christ will rule and reign there will be a day when all the earth will be healed by his presence. There will be a day when there will be no more war. There will be a day when the land will burst forth with its fruitfulness and not withhold that for (coughs) no matter how hard man labors. There will be a day when men will dwell with one another in peace. There will be a day in a new heaven and a new earth with a new Jerusalem, a new purpose. And we can't even wrap our minds around (coughs) all the incredible blessing you will bring. So God, I pray we hold on to the hope with one hand and then we pick up the plow and we go to work. We go to work planting the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ until that day comes so that the, the host who will believe and trust in you will come. Lord, we thank you that we have a responsibility to that, and all throughout the Bible, from Genesis to the end, you show us those patterns over and over and over so that we could recognize there is a purpose for us to fulfill. It's not to despair, but to lift our eyes and know where our help comes from. For you, Lord God, are able to deliver me over the mountains, through the desert, in difficult times, in in great times. And in it all, we want to proclaim the name of the Lord of hosts. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name, the God who saves. Lord, we give you praise and thanks in this time.